Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from The Lancet Neurology. I'm Natalie Harrison. Joining me today is Sir Graham Teasdale from the University of Glasgow. Many of you listeners and readers of The Lancet might be familiar with this name because 40 years ago, Teasdale and Brian Jennett published their milestone article on the Glasgow Coma Scale in The Lancet. 40 years on and Professor Teasdale is here to talk to me about what the Glasgow Coma Scale is and how this standardised clinical scoring system has changed research and clinical practice over the past four decades. Hello Professor Graham Teasdale and welcome to the Lancet Neurology Podcast. What is the Glasgow Coma Scale and how does it facilitate the assessment of patients with brain injury? The scale is a method for describing in a very simple straightforward way a key aspect of the clinical condition of someone who's suspected of having some kind of recent injury to the brain, whether from head trauma or stroke or poisoning. It looks at three aspects of the person, the eyes and the verbal and motor features. For the eyes, are the eyes open? If not, how much stimulation is required to make them open? In speech, are they communicating sensibly or if not, what kind of sounds they make? And in the motor, are they responding to commands? Or if not, how well is the integration between the motor response and the physical stimulus? The three aspects, each is graded according to steps of increasing impairment or reducing impairment. And the three aspects are here to give you an overall picture of how the brain is functioning. What it's aimed at is a so-called conscious level, a somewhat vague but long-standing term, which relates to how well the brain overall is functioning as against the focal deficits that occur when you've got some local damage. And in practice, the, the overall function is often more important in making decisions in patients and in indicating prognosis. The Glasgow Coma Scale was first reported in The Lancet in 1974. How did that seminal report change clinical practice? Before the, the scale, there was chaos. Hosts of different systems were doing this, inconsistent, vague, and it was really difficult to, for people to know what a, a patient was like, either when they went back to the same patient, re-examined them, or they communicated. And what the scale pretty quickly did was it made it possible to use a simple language so there was a clear picture of how the person was at that time. If an examiner went back, they had a pretty good idea whether the person had changed. And if they then had to hand on the information to someone else, either as a change shift or other hospitals, the two people could understand what the patient was like and avoid confusion and debates about decision-making. And much of the management in people, uh, certainly in those days with acute brain injury, depended upon detecting how they were uh, going, improving or deteriorating. And with this scale, decisions were taken more soon, um, appropriate action was taken promptly, and outcomes improved. The other thing was that um, a year after the scale was put in the Lancet, we described in a nursing journal, Nursing Times, a chart that the observations could be recorded on. And this proved very, very popular. It was picked up, and I've seen that chart throughout the world. The popularity amongst the nursing staff helped to get it propelled internationally. So it's now used by neurosurgeons in every country we've been able to contact. That's more than 80 countries. In addition, in about 60, it's been translated into the local language. Besides its influence in clinical practice, has the Glasgow Coma Scale been useful as an instrument in clinical research? Fairly soon after we uh, described the scale, it became a hot area of brain damage uh, research because lots of new treatments were being introduced and uh, there were debates about whether they were making a difference. And that required having a good handle on how patients were in the acute stage and then you could make a decision whether the groups were comparable 
whether any difference later on was real or might have been explained by variations of patient composition. And I think the, the scale was um, uh, the right language at the right time, so that it became the description that editors and referees expected uh, in, in any report on a head injury and other forms of group brain damage. So over the years, it's the number of citations has just climbed and climbed. It's now in, in several thousands. And, uh, and a survey done by some American and Canadian workers showed it's the most cited clinical neurosurgical paper of all time because of its sort of key basic role in clinical research. Could you please explain the difference between the Glasgow Coma Scale and the Glasgow Coma Score? A good question we're often asked. We started using the scale, using words to describe the three aspects of the patient. But very soon after that, we were interested in relating the early condition of the patient to what happened later. To do this, we needed to get the information about the three responses somehow into a computer. So we had a computer coding performer and three boxes for each of the responses. We gave numbers to the steps in each box. So one to four for the eye scale, one to five for verbal, one to six for motor. And we simply entered these into the box and the results came back. We were then faced with the problem of trying to sort of show relationships between three features and outcome in four dimensions and understand them. <laughs> Uh, and that proved a bit difficult for neurosurgeons. The temptation to add the three numbers together into one score proved irresistible. I mean, it came about purely by an almost accident. It wasn't uh, developed as a rigorous mathematical analysis, weighting different factors and so on. But what happened was it proved very effective by luck or perhaps good judgment. The total score showed a very good relationship to what was going to happen later on. So it, it became a very useful way of describing groups of patients, of classifying individuals. However, any single total score made up of three different ones loses information because apart from the extremes, the same total score can come from different combinations. So if we're talking about an individual person, we recommend talking about the three responses separately and using the total score in research, in drawing up guidelines and criteria. And they each have their role. Uh, and it's a kind of accident of history that they both ended up being shortened to GCS and uh, a bit of potential confusion that I do have a bit of a guilty conscience about. How should clinicians best use the Glasgow Coma Scale? When one's talking about clinicians, I look at that very broadly, um, not talking just about um, doctors and nurses, but paramedical staff and, and so on, because it is useful for all these groups. And I think that, as I've just mentioned, in terms of the individual person, that's the scale is what they should do to describe how the person is and any changes. Over the years it's been in use, uh, it's been picked up in many places, some variations in how it's assessed have come in. And indeed, we didn't see it as a straitjacket. It was a support communication rather than being something rigidly imposed. But what's happened is these variations have resulted in its reliability not being as good as perhaps desirable. So I think um, the clinicians should concentrate wherever they are in their own units or region, on reliable use of the scale through education programs and refreshment programs. And recognizing this, this position we're in, we've just uh, completed an educational video showing what we think is a standard approach to assessing it in a more structured way in the past that leads people through their um, initial checking the patient, observing what's going on, stimulating and then a yes-no approach to assigning the, the patient's state that we hope uh, will uh, improve reliability. The feedback I get is that uh, not just doctors and nurses, but 
paramedical staff think this is great and they have uh, no problems in using it and, and some people say it's too complicated but most of the paramedics that I have contact with and people I feel feel that's a little bit of a, a sort of denigrating comment about them and they, they think it's good. And finally, the Glasgow Coma Scale has stood the test of time for four decades. What will the next 40 years bring about in this field of research? Well, if I can borrow a crystal ball, I'll tell you that this is always an interesting question that any answer has to be taken with a pinch of salt. I think it's useful to to look at it in two ways. One is um, research into assessing how bad a brain is damaged. The other one is in treating it. And the coma scale, of course, is not a treatment, it's an assessment. The challenges in assessing how bad the brain is damaged is the, the number of aspects you can be looking at. So, for example, are you interested in how badly the brain overall is damaged or how badly one bit is? If you make measurements in great detail from one point, that can be highly informative but may not be representative. If the measurements of the brain as a whole, you can miss important local things. Then there is, do you do it at one point or repeatedly? Really, or continuous. So getting these right balance, I think, is a challenge of technology and data management. And there are lots of new approaches coming along that, that are a little bit sort of um, difficult to follow. But I think there's a lot of much more informative assessments potentially coming and much more useful ways of, of using the information. One of the um, issues that needs resolving is, do you treat patients with acute damage according to criteria and guidelines and regard them all as groups? Or do you try and get lots of information and individualize the care of a single patient to exactly what's going on in that time? What I'd like to see is, is studies that, that look into this sort of dichotomous approach, the, the generalized protocol versus individual. If we are talking about how do we deal with the brain damage itself, then prevention is obviously better than cure. We've certainly seen great reductions in mortality from injury because of prevention of accidents, particularly road traffic accidents. Once an injury has occurred, I think it's clear that the earlier the intervention, uh, the better, because there is some time before damage becomes established. And, and there it's largely sort of very simple methods applied effectively and rapidly. The area which I and others got involved in a lot was to try and do something to reverse the existence of damage through different approaches using so-called neuroprotective drugs. And despite very, very good experimental evidence, it just didn't translate clinically. I can see that being an aspiration, but um, at the moment there's not much clear pointing to it going to be delivered in the next 40 years, I don't know. Professor Graham Teasdale, many thanks for talking to the Lancet Neurology Podcast. My pleasure.